I do appreciate so much all of the energy and effort that has gone into this and that, that the time has just been amazing coming over here to this building and seeing so many different people constantly at work. And uh, there are still, you know, things to be worked out. We're going to get the screens working. We're going to be working on sound and all this stuff. And, and I, I appreciate you all being patient with that. But it's just, it's good to be here. It's just good to be here this morning. I just want to look at you guys for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Zechariah chapter 3. Why don't you turn there? Zechariah chapter 3. It's toward the end of the Hebrew Scriptures. The last book in the Hebrew Scriptures is Malachi, at least in our English Bibles. And then you're into the New Testament, beginning with Matthew. So if you hit Matthew or Malachi, you're close. Zechariah is right before that. And we're going to look at chapter 3, verse 8, and then we'll move on ahead to chapter 6, which is where I want to camp out for a little bit this morning. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. The angel of the Lord is speaking to the prophet of Zechariah. Now the angel of the Lord, if you don't know this, if you are unaware of this, the angel of the Lord, I believe, is none other than Jesus. In what we would call a pre-incarnate appearance. He is the incarnation of God. He showed up, yes, as a baby in Bethlehem, lived his life and all that. But throughout the Old Testament, and we've been studying this book for 11 years, the Hebrew Scriptures. And as you go through the Hebrew Scriptures, what you discover is Jesus keeps showing up. Psalm 40, verse 7, he says, Behold, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Well, who's that talking about? It's Jesus. And this angel of this uh, of the Lord, the, the Malach Yahweh, shows up. He's the, he's the fourth man in the furnace, as we've talked about. With Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you remember that old Sunday school story that was a real event in history, Jesus shows up and walks about the furnace with these guys. Jesus shows up in so many ways because the Word of God is about the Word of God who is Jesus Christ. He's the focus. He's the point of the whole thing. He's why we're gathered here. He's why this, this church is here. To know Him, to walk with Him, to live in His grace, and ultimately to be called up to be with Him forever. And I fully and truly believe this, and not from an emotional perspective, but from a well-reasoned and biblical perspective. So, here's the angel of the Lord in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, and he's speaking to Zechariah the prophet, and he tells Zechariah, i got a message here, take this, now listen, Joshua the high priest. You and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch... For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Now, if you'd want to know about the seven-eyed stone, you need to go back and listen to what we talked about last week. Not going to talk about it today. But we have this servant called the branch. And we have this prophecy to Joshua, who was the high priest at the time. This is 520 B.C. The prophecy to Joshua is you and your guys, you and your boys, you and your priests are a symbol of this one called the branch. Skip over to chapter 6, verse 9. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me also, saying, Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldei, Tobijah, Jediah, 
And you go the same day and enter the house of Josiah the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Verse 14, Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helim, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hin, the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. Father, as we open up your word this morning, we do so because we want to know the truth. There's a lot of lies in this world, Father. A lot of politicking. A lot of things on the world scene where we we don't know. We don't know if we're being told the truth. Sometimes by government, by the media, even by friends at times. We're not sure. Is this the truth? We want the truth, Lord. And we come asking you to show us truth today. We come seeking. I I have a bias, Father. I have a, 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 a plan in mind here. That people will hear about Jesus and be saved. And so, Father, while you pour truth into the hearts of your believers, I pray pray that you will pour truth into the hearts of those who are questioning, those who are not sure, those who would be doubtful. Not that they would hear my word and believe, Lord, but they would hear your word. And your word would cut through all the mess of this world. May we hear you and know you and believe in you, Lord Jesus. We ask your Holy Spirit to teach us through these these words, through the Scriptures now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, for thousands of years, God has been talking. And if you've ever spoken with someone who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Jesus, hasn't gone to church, a typical thing that you'll hear is, well, if God's really there, why doesn't He tell us? Well, He has been telling us. And He has been speaking loud and clear. He has spoken sometimes like a whisper. Other times like a storm. Sometimes like the sound of many waters. And other times the Lord speaks like a fire in the bones. But He's always speaking. He is always trying to get His Word out. It amazes me. People will sit in an environment like this with someone teaching the Word and they'll go, Man, if God would just talk to me. (laughs) Hello. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. Two verses that we have read over and over and over while we've been studying through this last part of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Minor Prophets. says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. God speaks. He spoke through the prophets. He speaks through His Son, Jesus. He speaks now by His Spirit to those who have ears to hear. But what do you do when God calls you? What do you do when you hear God? Eleven years ago, I was sitting at the corner of Cornet Bay Road and, uh, and 20, right there off the bridge, with my friend Andrew. He talked me into going fishing. I've told you all before, I'm not a fisherman. I'm not a catcher of fish. 
And we sat there at that light about to turn left on Cornet Bay when the Lord said, would you be willing to start a church on North Whidbey Island? And I can't explain to you anything other than that's what I heard. Would you be willing to start a church on North Whidbey Island? One of the craziest things I've ever been asked in my life. And I struggled with that. I think, I think like a lot of us do, when we think maybe we're hearing the Lord, or maybe we have an impression that we're supposed to, about to go do something, and we're not sure about it. And so for a week after hearing that, that was my attitude. I was like, I, uh, I don't know. Cheryl and I had been praying for seven months for God to show us what He wanted us to do, where we were supposed to go. Would you be willing to start a church on North Woodby Island? One week later... Cheryl and I had breakfast with Mark and Susan Harris. Where are you guys? Mark and Susan. Right over there. So Mark, and he can verify this, sitting across the table from me, we're just talking, chit-chat, different things, life changes, what's going to happen, what's going on, and Mark leans across the table and goes, Rick, i got to ask you a question. Would you be willing to start a church on North Whidbey Island? <laughs> and I went, Lord? <laughs> Not to Mark. I didn't call him Lord. We never call him Lord. Friend, Yes. I'm like, Lord, you've got to be kidding. Really? Cheryl got all excited because she didn't want to move out of the state. And I'm like, we jumped in their car. We drove across the bridge. We came over here to North Whidbey Island and started driving around. We're like, there's nothing here. I mean, people, (laughs) houses, a few barns rotting in the fields. You've got to be kidding, Lord. Would you be willing to... St- and we, we went as far as down into Oak Harbor. And it was like, well, there's a church and there's a church and there's a church over there. Why do you want me to start a church here, Lord? And it was like, I don't. Oh. North. North. And I, I kid you not, we knew from the very beginning that this church was not to be any further south than Troxel Road. Guess where we're sitting. Early on in this amazing story that that I don't have time, I wish I could tell you the whole thing this morning. Feel free to ask me. I'll give you the nuances and the things that have happened, but amazing things. We were introduced, as I said earlier, to the Gilmores. We had never met them. Weirdest thing in the world to meet someone on a Saturday and be in their home on Wednesday for Bible study. You know? God bless that. He kept leading us forward. And early on, I, I had a vision. This was before we met with the Gilmores. Before we had a place. Because it was September the 2nd, 2003, when I heard from the Lord, it was one week later that Mark asked the same question that God had asked me. And within the next week, I already was thinking, well, where would we meet? What will we do? And, and trying to drive around and find places, there was nowhere to meet. I thought if there was even like an old Grange Hall or something, hey, maybe that fire station at the end of Troxel. That didn't work out. We saw, you know, the big building that, that was for the for a while, the Bridge Cafe. You, you've seen that, that that welcome building there. We looked at that. That wouldn't work. How, what, what are we going to do, Lord? And God gave me a vision of us standing in the middle of a field having Bible study. The middle of a hay field. That hay field. Now, I had never seen this before. I, had, I hadn't been. I mean, I drove up and down Troxel, but, but you know, you don't, I, just, I was looking for a building, not a field, and, and God gave me a vision, just standing out there, Bible open, and five or ten people standing around, and what my impression at the time was, was simply, you're going to have a Bible study on October the 8th on North Whidbey Island, whether you have a place to meet or not. And that was fully my intention, right, Cheryl? We talked about that. Well, if we don't have anywhere to meet, we'll just gather whoever wants to come, we'll stand in a field and do Bible study. Because God said to do it. And it wasn't until later when this land when this land was gifted to the church 
That's another story. We're going to be here a while. Just get comfortable. This, we were, <laughs> we had made a decision, all the, all the elders, all the shepherds together, to buy this property. We found out about this 20 acres. We were going to buy it. We, we felt like this, you know, this was moving forward. And the cost of it would have emptied out everything that we had in our checking account. We had a meeting. Remember that meeting, Rod? And we, we sat there and we prayed together and we said, Lord, is this your will? Is this what you want us to do? And we all had a very strong sense, yes, you need to do it. So we said, okay, we'll empty the accounts and we'll just see what God does. Hey, we started with nothing anyway. We'll just go back to having nothing and then that land. And, and the next morning we got a phone call and, and a gentleman said, hey, I'd like to buy that land and give it to the church. And God just handed it to us. And it wasn't until after the fact, in fact, it, it was probably years later, when I was out here, we were getting ready to build, and I looked out across the hayfield, and God reminded me, remember when I said you're going to have a Bible study here? Well, you all are at it. This is, this is what God does. Now, people don't often admit these things, especially in the world, because it's weird, man. You're talking about something supernatural. Exactly. He's God. And He functions and works supernaturally beyond what we consider the natural realm, the natural world. Natural world's limited. God is not. And I am so far off my notes right now, I don't even know where I am. (laughs) He will. Here's the point. God is faithful. God has been faithful to His call. There, this, I, this is the weirdest thing in my entire life to have been involved in a, in a 15, 20 people Bible study that started on a Wednesday night and then to get to be a pastor of a barn church. I've loved it. I, I, I am the definition of a country pastor. I would walk to church through the woods, you know? We met in that icy cold barn through three or four winters before we got the heater in. I mean, it's just, it was wonderful. And I got to do that. I got to watch God just doing things. And, and, and all the way through, I kept thinking, Lord, what are you doing? Why, why me? Why, why do... It's got to be because of Cheryl. You know? And to be here this morning with you all, all I can say is God is faithful. You all know last Sunday, if you were at the barn last Sunday, we told you we're gonna, we're gonna open up next week. Monday morning we come walking in here, Brian comes walking up to me, he's got that look on his face. Mr. High Energy was high depression. <laughs> Just a look on his face like, we got a problem. Okay, what, what, what's the problem? Well, first of all, we've got a pump house back here that needs two special pumps ordered from the East Coast and they're not even here yet. And if we don't have that, we will not have occupancy. And I said, okay, well, we still have a week, right? So call Amazon. I mean, do whatever we have to do. (laughs) Second problem, much bigger problem. This property is wetlands. And so there's a certain amount of wetlands mitigation that needed to be taken care of. And somewhere along the line, and there's no one to blame, it's just as, as big a project as this all has been, and so many people have had their hands in it over the years, that there are things that sometimes get missed. And we miss some things that the county wanted done that we didn't find out until Monday that we have certain mitigation issues where we have to basically create a bog somewhere. I'm excited about that. (laughs) Yeah, baptistry, hey! And and I I really don't have any problem, you know, with us helping God do what obviously He can't do. (laughs) 
Okay, anyway, so so Brian's telling about this. Wetlands issue, what are we going to do? And, and we just started praying. And we prayed, and we prayed. And, and you all, if you were here Wednesday night, I asked everybody there Wednesday night, please pray for favor. Pray that the Lord gives us grace with the county. Tamara from the county came out here on Friday. She was kind. She went around checking everything off on the list. And i got to tell you, someone who should get a black is, is, is Brian, because he has worked his tail off getting these things done. Yep. Thank you, Brian. And what we realized when Tamara said, all right, uh, pump house, we got the stuff in, but the water hasn't been tested to be potable yet. It has to be potable before we can get a full you know, sign-off on occupancy. So you're here illegally. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Just want to see what you did. It's funny when you, when you say things like that because there are those people who gave, go, I'm here illegally, we got to get out. And there are those who go, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. That's right. That's right. Bring it on. I don't go to jail for Jesus. Crazy nuts. All that to say this, we come to the end of the week. And by the the way, I'm borrowing that phrase from Jake. All that to say, here we are at the end of the week. And all God wanted us to do was ask Him. And say, Lord, please go before us. This has been the most blessed week of prayer that I can remember in a long time. When I talk, I mean mean large-scale prayer in this body. People praying constantly. Staff meeting together every morning, every afternoon, grabbing hands and just praying. You know, Brian and I in the hallway, well, let's pray about that again. And over and over and over just saying, God, we're not going to get in there unless you open the doors. And He opened the doors. Because God is faithful. Because God never says something that He doesn't do it. And so the question, all that, brings us back to what do you do when God calls? I have a suggestion. Listen. When God calls you, do what He says. God is calling Zechariah the prophet. And yes, we are now back to the Scriptures. God is calling Zechariah the prophet. By the way, Bible students, Bridge Fellowship... What's the theme of the book? What does Zechariah's name mean? Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. What does that mean in Hebrew? The Lord remembers. The Lord blesses. At the appointed time. Excellent. Good. You remembered. The Lord remembers. The Lord blesses at the appointed time. Now, Zechariah had had a long night of visions. We've been looking at those over several weeks now, actually. Eight different visions, all within the same night, keeping him wide-eyed until about halfway through the visions where he starts to nod off, and the angel has to poke him and say, Dude, wake up! Pay attention! He's going through these visions. I don't have time to review them all. If you want to listen to them, the teachings are online at Zechariah 1-7 through 6-8. That entire section is eight visions, one night, given to Zechariah. And if you're interested in reading about filthy priests, flying scrolls, and stork-winged women, you ought to check it out. (laughs) Wild. Some of the most amazing visions that God gave any of the prophets, right here, He gave to Zechariah. But amazing as they were, you need to understand, they were not haphazard hallucinations. 
They were not random revelries. They all together, these eight visions, give a story arc of the life and history of Israel all the way up to the ultimate coming, the second coming of Messiah. And it's remarkable to read through and see that. And to see what the Lord says to Zechariah, shows him in these visions about ultimately the coming of Christ, the coming of Jesus, or as he's called in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, the branch. He is the branch. The morning after the visions, God calls on Zechariah to do something fascinating. An amazing task. He says, Zechariah, I want you to pre-enact a coronation. Pre-enact a coronation. Now remember, we looked at Zechariah 3.8. The angel of the Lord called Joshua and his fellow priests men who are a symbol. Why? They were a symbol of the branch. And what God is now calling Zechariah to do is act out a coronation on Joshua the high priest as a symbol of this one called branch who was to come. The actual, the true, the legitimate coronation that would happen. But I want you to do it on Joshua, the high priest. Check it out. Chapter 6, verse 9. The word of the Lord also came to me saying, Take an offering from the exiles, from Haldai, Tobijah, and Jediah. And you go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. Now, nobody is named in Scripture haphazardly or by accident. Every name is someone legitimate, someone important, someone who had a role to play, like so many of you in making this fellowship what it is. Well, these guys were like that. They were a deputation from what's called the Hagalah. A deputation from the Hagalah. The Hagalah is the Hebrew word for the exiles, the captives, those who were still living in Babylon, although they had been given their freedom. Which is still weird to me. Why would someone, when given freedom, choose to remain captive? And yet it happens all the time. God sent Jesus to die that men and women would be free from sin, free from death, free from condemnation, free from guilt, free from shame. And yet people say, I'd rather remain in Babylon, thank you very much. I want to remain captive. You have that choice. So the the, the men came, this deputation comes from Babylon, and they come bringing a gift. They were arriving that morning with an offering, probably for the building of the temple, because that's what was going on. They show up with gold and with silver, intending to hand this over. Hey, this was all collected in Babylon for the work here in Jerusalem. And God determined all that gold and silver would be used for something else. Now God can do that. I wouldn't suggest men do that. Church leaders probably shouldn't do that. But God can. He can change directions. And I realized reading that, sometimes what I give to God doesn't go where I want it to go. You know, there are things that I'll I'll write the check, I'll drop it in the box, and I'll go, okay, this will be good because missions is going to get all of this. And, and, And then it goes somewhere else. And perhaps that's bothered you in the past. You've given money to something, some work, some, some effort for, for God, and it really hasn't gone where it was supposed to go. Don't worry about it. You just give. And you just trust Him in faith. That's the best kind of giving anyway. You close your eyes, you drop the money off, and you let it go. And so these guys brought this great offering. They hand it over, but it wouldn't go to the septic system. 
It would not be used for an additional reservoir or water pump. It wouldn't be an additional large screen TV. It was for the making of a crown. I want you to make a crown, Zechariah. A crown for the pre-enactment of a coronation. Verse 11. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Some could easily complain about this. Wait, we sent a deputation from Babylon with silver and gold and you made it into a crown to be used for a symbolic act? Really? What a waste! What a complete waste! It is never a waste to give your crown to Jesus. It is never a waste to coronate, as it were, Christ as King. And in this case, think about this. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. John sees this in a vision. That's Revelation chapter 4. John sees this vision of all this worship going on in heaven before Jesus there at the throne and all these elders, 24 of them, taking off their crowns and throwing them to the Lord. What a waste. How do you even know it's his you know, half size? You're throwing away your crown. Crowns are never a waste when given to Jesus. Do you have any crowns you'd like to give to him? Crowning achievements in your life, things you're really proud of, stuff that you've done, things you've accomplished, best use of any of that stuff is to hand it to Him, to cast it before Him. The Hebrew here in Zechariah chapter 6, where it says, make an ornate crown. Some of your Bibles may say, make crowns in the plural. And it is in the plural form of the word, but it indicates an ornate crown, a singular crown that is magnificent. Some have said, no, it's more than one crown. You know, I'm not going to argue over that. The, the, the word is atarot, and it can also be used to indicate, as it is in other places in Scripture, fancy. Take silver and gold and just make this amazing, beautiful crown. A crown to coronate a king. Think about Revelation 19, verse 12. John, describing Jesus in His second coming, writes, His eyes are a flame of fire. On His head are many diadems. Many diadems. Many crowns. How many crowns can one person wear? I mean, have you ever thought about that? Was you have one like sitting forward, and one sitting sideways, and one sitting like a baseball cap of a, you know? And what, what is, how many crowns can one wear? Many diadems, again, expressing the idea of glory. Ornate, beautiful, mind-boggling. And it reminds me of the old hymn. Crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon his throne. Hark! How the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. If there are any crowns in this world, the best place for them to go is to Jesus. He is the standard of royalty. 
Now, this symbolic act of, of Zechariah the priest, or Zechariah the prophet, taking this and making this crown and putting it on the head of Joshua the high priest, this act is considered by many to be the single greatest prophecy of Messiah in the entire Bible. That this is the go-to. Let's break it down. Zechariah places the ornate crown of gold and silver on Joshua's head. Joshua standing again as a symbol of the branch. The crown is not for Joshua. It's to symbolize the crowning, the coronation of this man called Branch. As he says in verse 12, look at it again. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold a man. Stop right there. Literally that should read, behold the man. Behold the man. Five centuries later, these exact same words would be spoken by Pilate to a beaten, bedraggled, and bashed in Jesus. Jesus, the scriptures indicate, was at that point unrecognizable because of the beatings he had just gone through. And Pilate brings him out. So what Pilate's doing as a politician is he's trying to appease. That's what politicians do. And he's trying to do this. He brings Jesus out, beaten up, bloodied, in awful shape, and he goes, Behold the man. This is no Messiah. It's just a man. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, John 19, 5, and the purple robe. And Pilate said, Behold the man. I wonder what that was like for Jesus in those few moments. But you know what's even more amazing than that? More amazing than thinking about the the pain and the suffering and the sorrow and the shame that Christ was bearing in that moment is the realization that there is no pain, sorrow, shame, or suffering you can experience that He doesn't understand. He knows. He knows what it's like to, to, to be called out in front of the world. He knows what it's like to be in a place of disgrace and dishonor. Please understand, if you've ever been there, Jesus knows. He gets it. He's been there himself. But when Zechariah says, Behold the man, as he's placing this crown on Joshua's head, it's not a picture of a man broken and beaten and and bedraggled. It's it's a pre-enactment of a crowning glory. Behold the man, as in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant who who I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Behold the man. Or, as in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of the donkey. And you remember that was the prophecy of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Or Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, which says, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Because this man, this man as we talked about last week, this branch is none other than God in the flesh. This pre-enactment is a portrayal of the coronation of Jesus as Messiah. And my friends, if you will follow Him, you will be there to see it. Better than the last scene in the Return of the King, Lord of the Rings trilogy. (laughs) 
which is a scene that brings tears to my eyes. I know, Cheryl, it's weird. Every time, here comes Aragorn, he's walking down there, and they cry. It's like, oh, this is beautiful, man. It's man tears, you know what I'm saying? Behold the man, he says, whose name is Branch. And we talked about the man named Branch last week. Zechariah is instructed now to repeat this title. The, the Hebrew Scriptures are clear. It's a title of Messiah. The rabbis know that. We'll teach that. Branch is a messianic title. Branch, Samach in the Hebrew. Samach, the ideal king. That word is used, Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 33. Samach, the intermediary servant. Used in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. Samach, the branch, the industrious man of Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. Samach, the incarnate God of Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. And we went through all of that last week, one by one, talking it through. Bible students, do you recall the parallel? Four times this name, branch, is used to describe the Messiah. Once as king, once as servant, once as man, and finally as God which is the presentation of Jesus in the four Gospels. Matthew presents him as king, Mark presents him as servant, Luke presents him as man, and John presents him as God. Behold, the man whose name is Branch. But keep going, for it says, he will branch out from where he is. It's going to branch out from where he is, but if we could, if we could grasp it in the Hebrew, we would get more of what is being said here. It's umitaktav, it's mock. Does that illuminate it for you better? He will sprout up from under him, is what it says. And the indication here is it speaks of the roots of this man called Branch, the roots out of the unexpected soil of Israel. That is, at a time when the ground was dry. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. Because Jesus in His first coming came as a servant. He came with the Gospel message. He came saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then He died to pay the bloody price once and for all for anyone who would desire to be saved. And then He resurrected on the third day. And now He awaits this coronation. He will branch out from where he is. In other words, he would sprout up in unpretentious obscurity. He would not come to this world the first time the way I would have come to the world the first time had I been, you know, Messiah. I know that's hard for you to believe. Hard for you to imagine. But I would have come in with like 10,000 fiery chariots. Trumpets blowing, probably a little lead guitar, you know. I would land on the top of Mount Zion and I'd say, what? (laughs) Jesus just gets born in a manger in Bethlehem, quietly at a time where no one saw him coming. Born a baby, raised by a couple of poor carpenter, blue-collar workers. Raised up in Nazareth? He will sprout out from where he is. Like a root out of parched ground. Paul puts it for us this way. Philippians 2 verse 6, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. 
How amazing. Zechariah continues, he will branch out from where he is, he'll come out of this place of obscurity, but remarkably, he says, and he will build the temple of the Lord. This man called Branch, he's going to do it. And I believe he is talking about the millennial temple. That's a temple that's going to be built in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount in the coming millennial kingdom. And if you're not sure about that, read Ezekiel chapter 40, 41, 42, and 43. Check it out for yourself. The description of the millennial temple is absolutely breathtaking. And this man who is called the branch, he's going to build it. This is Messiah's job. And even today, I said this last week, Conservative Jews believe that when Messiah comes, He will build the temple. That's one of the signs that they would look for. He's the builder. He's the guy. There are Hasidic Jews who will not go on the Temple Mount today, refuse to allow any of their people to go up on the Temple Mount because they say, when Messiah comes, He'll do it. And we will wait until He shows up. He's already been here. When He comes, He comes in return. But until then, until he builds that literal, that actual millennial temple that is Jesus' job to build, there's a spiritual element to what's going on here. He's the one who builds the temple. It's always Jesus who builds the temple. 1 Peter 2 verse 4 says, Coming to Him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You want to know what excites me more than anything else this morning? It's not that we're sitting in this barn. It's that we are sitting in this barn. Building, whatever. That thrills me. Because when we look at each other, you are looking right now at the spiritual temple of the Lord. Which is never limited by buildings. It's never limited by the dumbness of man. The temple of the Lord, He builds. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6, Christ was a faithful son over His house, whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So even now there is a temple of the Lord. Paul goes so far as to say individually you are a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Again, if you you follow Jesus, that's His desire. He wants to fill you up. He wants to dwell in you and you become then a temple for Him. We collectively are a temple of the Lord now. But there will be an actual and literal millennial temple. And I'm pretty sure they're going to call Paul in just to, you know, do a little architectural work. (laughs) Jesus will build it. But here is where it gets really cool. For anyone who thought the branch might be Zerubbabel, and some lame commentators do. Did I say lame out loud? Sorry. For those who think, well, no, this is just a picture of Zerubbabel, who was the governor at the time. He was in the direct line of David, so perhaps they were just crowned. Kind of a a picture uh, of restoration of of authority, leadership, whatever. Um, Well, the crown was not set on Zerubbabel's head. It was put on Joshua's head, which is another problem. You don't crown a priest. Why did God do this? Why would God put the crown on the head of the priest and not on the head of the governor who was in the line of David? That would be a better picture. 
This one of the line of David is, you know, representative of the branch. No, no, the priest. Put it on the priest's head, Zechariah. God gives us here a picture of a priest with a ruler's crown. Look at verse 13. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule upon his throne. Thus he will be, this one called branch, a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices. You realize there is no seat for a priest. Right? If you look in the temple of Solomon, the temple of Zerubbabel, if you look all the way back to the tabernacle, the one piece of furniture missing was a chair. Priests didn't sit down when they went in to do their work. There was no place to sit. Well, let me correct that. There was one seat. Right. The mercy seat. Which was above the Ark of the Covenant where God said, I'll meet you there. That's the only seat. But this says this priest is is going to sit and rule on his throne. Priests don't sit on a throne. This one will. Is there anywhere else in Scripture where we see a priest with a crown, where we see a man who is called to serve God as a priest, but is also a ruler and king at the same time. There's one place. A man by the name of, anyone? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. What a great name. Melchizedek. King of righteousness. It says in Genesis 14, 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, that was Jerusalem, first mention of Jerusalem in the Bible, Genesis 14, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Put that together. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and he's also king of Salem, which means peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. This guy comes out, brought out bread and wine, and it says, now he, this king of righteousness, king of peace, now he was a priest of God Most High. This guy was priest and king. Well, that's not okay. You're mixing religion and politics, and we don't do that. You know, we're not supposed to do that, especially if you live in Houston. <laughs> Have you heard about that? You're all aware of this? That down in Houston, the government was telling all the pastors you got to turn in your sermons because we don't like you saying things from the pulpit about our, our about our, our lesbian uh, governor, our lesbian mayor. That's not cool. So we would really like in writing what you have been saying to your churches. Welcome to America 2014, gang. This is why I say freedom is given by God. Because when man gives freedom, man loves to take it back. That's a side issue. We won't get into that right now. Hebrews chapter 11, chapter 7, verse 2, talking about this Melchizedek, this king who is a priest. At the same time, it says, By the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, This one in Scripture is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. In Hebrews 3.17 it says, For it is attested of Christ Messiah, you are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And I'm sorry, that's Hebrews 7.17. You are the order of Melchizedek. What order is that? King and priest. You're both. And the only time in the, in the Bible that we see that king-priest situation happening is in Melchizedek, and then later we see it now in the coronation of our coming Lord Jesus Christ. 
There were kings who tried to do priestly work, and it did not turn out well. Another story for another time. But in Psalms 110, verse 2, it says this, The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Psalm of Messiah. You're going to rule. In Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We see this happening. We see the Hebrew writer mention it. He's quoting from Psalm 110 where David wrote about this. And here with with Zechariah placing the crown on Joshua's head, he begins to speak this same reality. This one, this branch is one who will both rule and serve. He will be king and he will be priest. Spurgeon says, and you know when you use Spurgeon quotes in Scripture, in in preaching, that means you know what you're talking about. (laughs) Right. Spurgeon says it must be a solemn and sure matter which leads the eternal to swear and with him an oath fixes and settles the decree forever. But in this case, as if to make assurance a thousand times more, it is added and will not change his mind. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, will not repent, will not turn around from His swearing. God swore that Messiah would be king and priest. Ain't going to change. This is an absolute assurance. Spurgeon goes on and says, It is done, it is done forever and ever. Jesus is sworn in to be the priest of His people, priest and king. And that's why it says the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now, literally, literally it's just the council of peace will be between the two of them. Between the two of them. Psalm 72 verse 7 says, In his days may the righteous flourish an abundance of peace till the moon is no more. May he also rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. As the council of peace is between both the priesthood and the royalty. Now after this amazing ceremony, something else takes place. Look at verse 14. Now, the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Halim, which don't let that confuse you. That's the same guy we saw earlier uh, back in verse 10. That's Heldai. It's just a nickname for Heldai, Halim. It'll be to Tobijah, to Jediah, and to Hin, which is a nickname of the other guy, Josiah. To Hin, son of Zephaniah. So according to Jewish tradition and according to what God commanded Zechariah here, what was done is after this coronation, they took the crown and they put it in the highest uh, window in the temple. It it was put up there and left there kind of as a a reminder to the Jewish people that Messiah was going to come and reign and rule as priest and king. Just put the crown up there. Now, go back just for a moment. Because this this phrase in verse 13 is an interesting phrase. He says, the council of peace will be between the two offices. Or as I said before, the council will be between the two of them. The two of whom? 
Now, we're on this side of things looking back. I've already told you it's king and priest, right? But if you're just reading that perhaps as a Jew back in the day, if you're Zechariah hearing this, the Council of Peace will be between the two of them. People have asked, was there perhaps rivalry between Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the priest? Was there maybe some tension there? And this will kind of take care of that. It will heal a little nasty rift. Not in the least. These two were joined, Joshua and Zerubbabel, along with Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet. These four guys, they were joined at the hip. They were working for the Lord together. They were bonded in a unique bond in a unique time in history. And it cannot be talking about them. There's going to be a council of peace between priest and king. And again, no question, there has always been an historical tension between priests and rulers, between religious guys and government guys. That tension is not new in our country. Separation of church and state, right? It's like the tension between worship leaders and pastors. Which is really weird here at the bridge. You should hear some of the arguments we have in here. The age-old conflict between these two peoples, a priestly chosen, listen, a priestly chosen people and a corrupt ruling people. You know what I'm saying? There has been an age-old conflict through God's people, with God's people Israel, a priestly people, and the rest of the world, which, since the times of the Gentiles began, has been a ruling problem. Conflict between priest and king. We need a council of peace. We, We need someone who can step in and bring peace between ruling Gentiles and priestly Jews. And only one is going to be able to do that. Only one. And Paul picks up on this by the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 2. And I'd like you to turn your Bibles over there right now. Real quickly, Ephesians chapter 2. Rick, it's opening Sunday. How come you're not just doing a light, fluffy, three-point message? Because that's not what we do at the bridge. (laughs) And this Sunday is no different than any other. And I mean that sincerely and honestly. When we get here together, we worship God because He is worthy of all worship. And we read and study His Word because His Word is truth. And so, uh, chew on this stuff. Feed on it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. (laughs) What an amazing thing to call people. You're so uncircumcised. (laughs) Well, that was inappropriate. (laughs) And yet there were Jews in Paul's day who were calling Gentiles, even Gentile believers, they're the uncircumcised. And if they're truly going to be people that belong to God, they've got to get circumcised. And Paul was saying, no, you're saved by grace. You are not saved by a cutting of the flesh. You are saved by a circumcision of the heart. Which happens by repentance, by giving your life to the Lord. And so Paul going on. What verse was I at? Twelve. 
Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And by the way, that's how you have no hope. If you're without God, you have no hope. Even right now, if you are without God in this world, you have no hope but this world. And I'll tell you, somewhere between Isis and Ebola, I'm thinking there's not a lot of hope. (laughs) You are without hope, without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's marvelous. For he himself is our peace. Watch this. Who made both into one. Broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He made the priestly group and the ruling group into one. The council of peace. Goes on and says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, that, that is that, the hatred, which is the law of commandments in ordinances, so that he himself, in himself, he might make the two into one man. Thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity or again the hatred. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing, oh look at this, into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Did you hear what Paul just said? Look back at verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Far out. I'm trying to bring that one back, by the way. I could use a little help. Not enough people in our culture are using far out anymore. I love that phrase. Far out. Remember John Denver used to say it all the time. Far out. Yeah. Groovy is another one I'd like to see us use more. You know, radical. That'd be cool. Cool's cool. Anyway. <laughs> you who are far off. You who are far off. Well, who's he talking about? Gentiles, you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You are not part of the whole Jewish thing. Unless you're Jewish, and if you are, guess what? Your Messiah loves you and is calling you and and wants to bring you home. But what about the rest of us? What about us non-Jewish folk? You know, what do we have? Paganism? Come on! We were far off. We were excluded. We were cast out. We were not part of the whole deal until Jesus came. And Paul says, you who were far off have been brought near. And by the Spirit, don't miss this, by the Holy Spirit, what Paul just told us is that we, the church, get to be part of the construction crew of Christ for His millennial temple. Look back at Zechariah 6.15. Verse 15, Then those who are, what does it say? Far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. 
He's not talking about the exiles in Babylon. Oh, perhaps, you know, in fact, anyone who feels separated from God can be part of this amazing thing. And, and in fact, those who were far off had already been helping the building of the temple, the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple. They already sent the silver and gold that was supposed to go to the septic system but went to this crown. They would send people. Ezra would come with people to help the construction and the encouragement of the Jewish people in Israel. So all that would would take place in in a lesser way. But Paul, reading Zechariah, instructed by the Spirit of the Lord, says, wait a minute, the far off. It says, those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. You were far off. I was far off. It's us. And we are now called upon to be brought near, saved, washed by the blood of Jesus, built into a holy spiritual temple, and to be on site at the construction process, not of the Bridge Christian Fellowship, but of the holy temple on the Temple Mount in the Millennial Kingdom. I'm going to be there. And I'll tell you what, I'm not great at swinging a hammer right now. I'm going to be amazing in my glorified body. You want me to pull up that wall, Lord? You got it. Boom, done. What up? <laughs> and then he says, You will know that the Lord of hosts has sent, note the word, me to you. Well, who said that? The angel of the Lord who is speaking to Zechariah now says, Then you'll know the Lord sent me, sent me to you. When will we know the Lord has sent Jesus to us? When He finishes construction of the Millennial Temple with His far out, far off crew. What an amazing promise. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You once were not a people, now you are a people. You once had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. You get it? You now become... Catch the phrase, Peter's phrase, you now become a royal priesthood. Kings and priests. And the council of peace is between the two offices. Not replacing Jesus by any stretch of the imagination, but ruling and reigning with Him. Revelation 1.6, He called us to be a kingdom, priest to His God. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5.10 You have made them to be a kingdom and priests. Kings and priests. Rulers and priests. And they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 20 verse 6 Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. What's the first resurrection? It happens when you give your life to Jesus. You give your life to Jesus today, you are part of the first resurrection. And you will be in that first resurrection. But he says, over these the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Priests who reign. Because we will be subjects, servants of the King and Priest, Jesus Christ. The one who brought the council of peace finally to this world. Finally, there will be a rule of righteousness that is godly. You keep waiting for that in a president, don't you? 
my entire life. Started voting when I was 18 years old. I have gone through so many presidents in my lifetime, and I keep waiting. We've had some good ones. We've had some not so good. I'm not saying who was which. You can talk to me later about that if you want. But we have not yet had one who is able to bring about the council of peace. There is still division. And that division, my friends, I hate to tell you, but it will remain until Jesus comes. But you don't have to have that division in your life. See, because in your heart, there's an issue going on. I know, because it goes on in my heart. And it is a battle between rule and and priestly service. A battle between the rule of the flesh and being in charge and being the boss of my life and submitting spiritually like a priest to the Lord. And what Jesus does is He comes along and says, I want to give you peace. I want you to stop the fighting, the infighting in your own heart. I I was obviously kidding about worship leader and pastor tension, but I'll tell you what, there is a tension in this man and it is a tension of the rule and authority and the service of the priest. And it is only Jesus who brings it together and allows me to sit under His rule and His perfect priesthood. The Council of Peace. He brings that peace. You see, the royal priesthood of believers, the royal priesthood of believers is something Jesus promises to everybody if you will accept Him as Lord and Savior. You're in. You're part of it. You're in the deal. Acts 2.39, listen to what Peter said. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call to Himself, will call to Himself. So what do I have to do? We're almost there. Stick with me. What do I have to do? Look at the very end. The last part of verse 15. And it will take place... If you completely obey the Lord your God. That peace, the promise, eternal life, all the good. Feinberg says, Has not God placed all people in the position where they must respond by faith and obedience to His blessed message of grace and love? Nowhere in the Bible can we find that God has set eternal life before people without their necessary response of faith to it. You see, it's not good enough just to sit here this morning and go, well, that sounds good. I heard him. I heard him talk about that stuff. Yeah, okay. So, it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. When you see the branch, when you understand God has sent him to you, when you listen to his call and you respond. And by the way, the obedience that we're called to here is not an obedience to every single jot of the law, every of the 613 laws of Moses. Man, you gotta keep them. If you are not obedient to all of them, if you miss one, (laughs) this ain't coming your way. We are called to obey by receiving Christ as Lord. Period. And you do that and the law will take care of itself. When you hear the Lord call, how can you not answer back with faith and obedience? If you're new to Jesus this morning, 
You need to understand. He calls you to obedience. He just wants you to obey Him by saying, Yes, Lord. I will receive you as king and priest over my life. King, which means he has the rule. Priest, which means he's done the sacrifice. On the cross. That paid for all sin. Yours and mine alike. And if you've never received Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, come to Him, obey Him today, and all of this will come to you. If you are already of the royal priesthood of believers, my friends... This is not the end of this journey. We are just getting started. And we have a call of obedience on our lives. And I'm speaking right now directly to you of the Bridge Christian Fellowship. You guys have been walking down this road a while. Who do you know who today is far off from the Lord? Who do you know who's far off? Who right now does not No, serve, love, follow Jesus. This building of the temple, you can look around right now and go, wow, it's just beautiful. This building's finished. No, it ain't. Because this is not the building we were called to build. The building we were called to build is the temple of the Lord. Who do you know who right now is far off and does not know Jesus? Because we got some bricks missing. We got some stones out of place. We have some holes in the walls. And our Lord Jesus would say, the branch, Jesus, He has a call out on this fellowship. Look around, gang. It is harvest time and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. He's called us to the harvest. Let's go to work. Amen? Amen. It is time now to roll up our sleeves. It is time to get the message of the gospel out to everybody you know who does not know the Lord. Don't be shy. It is time to be bold. It is time to step up. It is time to make the presence of the gospel of Jesus known on this end of the island. And all the way down to the south end of the island. And across the bridge on that other island. Fidalgo. And out into Burlington and Mount Vernon. This is the call of Jesus on our lives. Go to the harvest. Bring in people from the field. That's our call. My question to you, who are you going to bring to the branch? Who are you going to bring to the branch? Lord Jesus, we consecrate this building to your service. And we pray in your most holy name, Jesus. Asking that you would consecrate this, not as a sanctuary for believers, but as a place to receive the harvest. Consecrate this building in the name of Jesus Christ for the salvation of the lost. We consecrate this building, Lord Jesus, to be a place where carpets get messed up and walls get damaged and stuff gets stolen. We consecrate this building as a place, Father, where people will wander in the doors and not look the part. Where people will be messed up and need love and need compassion and need care and need affection. We consecrate this building in your name to be a building that is used. Again, for that singular purpose of salvation. 
We pray, Father, our study of Your Word will equip us to the work before us. We ask, Lord, that our worship would not only be an outpouring of our hearts to You, as we always desire it to be, but it would be an example of the love relationship that anybody can have with You. We pray, Father, when we share communion, that people will see bread and wine and think about the body and the blood of Jesus broken and sacrificed for them as our great high priest. We consecrate this building for your use. Lord, we consecrate this building knowing the time is short. I wasn't even sure we were going to be in the building before you came back. Now that we're here, Lord, we consecrate it to your use for salvation. And may we not be protective of it or fearful of it. Lord, would you bring the lost in and would you use us as obedient servants to invite people to know you and to love you and to walk with you. There's no greater thing in all the world. We consecrate this building in the name of Jesus Christ for the purposes of Jesus Christ, for salvation in Jesus Christ until the coming of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we dedicate ourselves to the fields of harvest. In your word you say, shall I bring to the point of delivery and not give birth? And you prove that in Israel. You brought Israel to the point of delivery and you gave birth to a nation. In our age. Well, Father, I pray that now you have brought us to the point of delivery. You have given birth, as it were, to this fellowship in this new place. Lord, that we would grow up and grow up quickly in the power of your Spirit, in the truth of your Word, and with the compassion of God on our hearts so that people could be saved. May we no longer shy away. Make us bold in the Spirit. Bold with the message of truth. We consecrate this building to You, Lord. We dedicate ourselves to Your service.